scripture today. Today we are reading in James 4 verses 1 through 10. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Karen. Well, we are continuing uh, to teach through the New Testament book of James. Uh, there is a Bible around you somewhere, I think. If not, uh, you, can, you can read, uh, use whatever device you want to read with us as we are uh, studying this today. But we've been doing this now for a little while. We've got a few more weeks to go studying this New Testament book of James. And what we've been learning is that faith has a function, that faith has a function, that there really isn't such thing as a faith that doesn't work. There really isn't such a thing as a Christian life that doesn't bear fruit. What James has been telling us is that there's either real faith, what James would call a living faith, or there is a dead faith. A living faith or a dead faith. And the way we can know uh, if we have that living faith is to look at our life, to, to judge our life, to look at the results of our life, to be able to figure out if we have a living, a living faith. So the question we've been asking every week is, um, do I possess what I confess? This is kind of the question that we've been asking. Do I possess what I confess? Does my life look like what I believe? Because unfortunately, all of us, me, you, all of us, we could identify areas and places in our life where there's not a congruence. There's not, it doesn't line up between what we say we believe and the life that we live. This is something we all struggle with. And so James has been coming, uh, this author, little brother of Jesus, the author of this letter has been coming each week and kind of challenging us in all these different areas of, of our life. So we made it to chapter four, and today, um, the, the scripture for, for today is really kind of broken up into two sections. <clears throat> the first part is, is verses one through six, and the second part, the second part is verses seven through 10. And uh, that last part, seven through 10, is about getting and feeling closer to God getting and feeling closer to God. And what I hope that I can do today is I want to try to get to that second part and I want to try to be really helpful. I want to try to explain how we can actually do what, what it says to do there. 
How can we actually resist the devil? And how can we actually get closer to God? And as I was reading uh, these verses and kind of studying and thinking about the message, I was really challenged because um, I think when we read verses like resist the devil, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee or come close to God, draw close to God. He'll draw close to you. We kind of read them in these abstract terms. It feels very ethereal or subjective. Uh, you know, like James is just saying kind of in general, try to be closer to God. But, but he's not literally saying resist the devil. Or there's not an actual like literal way to do that or a literal way to draw close to God. Or maybe you were raised in religious environments where there was a heavy emphasis on drawing close to God. So you know exactly what you would do to draw close to God. You know the music you would play and how you would dim the lights and you know what you would, like you know, because there, there were these opportunities for you. But we, we struggle to, to read these verses and, and to actually know literally what we can do, practically what we could do. How is it that we actually resist the devil and come close to God? Um, I want to I answer that. I would love to be able to answer that for you today. Because I think all of us, regardless of where you are spiritually, I think all of us would say that we want to feel closer to God. We want to feel closer to God. And we want to feel farther away from the devil. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I think most of us would say, hey, you know what? I'd love to feel farther from the devil and closer to God. I think that would be a, a fantastic thing. And so maybe we, can, maybe we can do that. But before we do that, I have to answer another question. That's what the first part's about, is I have to answer why. So we're going to talk about how. How do you resist the devil? How do you draw close to God? But before we can talk about how, we got to talk about why. Why should we resist the devil? Why should we draw close to God? And the second answer won't make any sense uh, unless we understand we understand why. The how won't matter unless we understand why. So that's what we're going to do for the time we have together. First, we're going to answer why is it so hard to resist the devil and get close to God. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how we can actually try to do that. We're going to talk about why, and then we're going to talk about how. So first, let's talk about why. Why is it so hard? What is it that makes it so hard to resist the devil and to draw close to God? I want to tell you an incredibly embarrassing story about myself, okay, uh, to get us started with this. When I was in the seventh grade, I went to my first school dance. Um, I grew up in a religious home, amazing, uh, amazing parents, not overly religious, not overly, um, you know, legalistic or anything. Uh, but we definitely didn't dance in the sense of like, we just didn't know how to because we didn't. Um, and so I, I, I went to my second or my seventh grade dance, first dance I'd ever been to, didn't have a girlfriend, didn't know how to dance, but it's seventh grade. It's a dance. This is what you do. Right. And so, um, so I go to the dance now, it, it, I don't even know if I'll be able to really kind of accurately paint this for you. But, um, when I was in seventh grade, I was a terrible student, but incredibly likable. Okay. So... <laughs> The teachers liked me, but hated the kind of student that I was. But I, my parents had done a pretty good job raising me. So they'd say, you're so respectful and you're kind. And, um, and so the adults in the school loved me. The kids didn't like me that much at all. And we had a, uh, a hearing impaired girl in seventh grade. She was a, a deaf girl. And so she um, had an adult uh, sign language person with her all, all year. And so... This, this, this interpreter was, you know, I don't know, in her 20s, 
and and we just like we hit it off. Like adults loved me. I don't know. Kids didn't like me. I don't know how it works. It's kind of the story of my life. So um, so I'm at this seventh grade dance. True story. Incredibly embarrassing story. I'm, we're at this seventh grade dance, and the interpreter walks up to me and says, and I can't even remember the girl's name, but the girl, the, the, the deaf girl, let's just call her Sarah for whatever reason. I don't think it was Sarah, but we'll call her Sarah. The interpreter walks up to me and says, Sarah would like to dance. Would you, would you like to dance with Sarah? And before the words came out of my mouth, before I thought about the fact that I didn't actually know how to dance, I said, yeah, that'd be great. And so, like the first, you know how school dances work. Like the first 30 minutes, it was all fast songs. You know, you're just kind of keeping it here. You know, I don't know. I, this, is, this is what I know how to do, right? And so, but now we've moved into the slow selection part of the evening, you know? And so, so I said, yeah, I would love to dance. And Sarah and I, we walk out to the dance floor. Andrea, would you help me? Can you come up here for me? <clears throat> We walk out to the dance floor, and again, I just want to remind you, I've never danced. I don't know how to dance. The only thing that I think of in that moment is dancing that I've seen, like in movies and stuff. And the first scene that comes to my mind was Beauty and the Beast. I don't know why. I don't know why. And so, again, I don't know. So I walk out there with, we'll call her Sarah, and I put my hand on her hip, and I just hold my hand out like this. And we just begin to kind of, at this seventh grade dance, I mean, I'm just kind of, because I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Sixty seconds into the song, Sarah walks away from me. She left me on the dance floor. It was the last school dance that I ever attended. I didn't even go to my prom. Uh, it was the last school dance that I ever attended. And the last time now, I, at wedding receptions, I say to Andrea, I'll give you one song. You let me know when you want it. We'll cash it in. And then we'll go. And we'll just kind of hands on the hips. We'll just kind of, you know, try not to move the feet. Let's just stay right here, you know. Uh, yeah, that was I, I, Beauty and the Beast. I don't know where it came from. It just, it was there. And um, it was a beautiful thing, but awful. So let me tell you why I'm telling you this. Uh, let me tell you why I'm telling you this story. Because this, this memory came rushing back to me this week. Uh, it's funny how that happens. Reading through these verses, because in these first few verses, James is trying to paint a picture for us. And it's not a pretty picture, by the way. And in essence, what he says is, he's going to really make a strong accusation against you and I. And what he's going to say is that, is that we are the girl who left God on the dance floor. This is, what, this is what James is kind of accusing us of. Is he's going to say to us, like, you're Sarah. You're Sarah. And, you, and you, you've left God on the dance floor. And I want to show you how he does that. Okay, so first, he asks us a question. The very first verse, Karen read it for us. He says, what's causing quarrels and fights among you? In essence, James asks you and I the question, what is causing you to be so upset in your life? What's causing you to be so upset? And I think we could all agree today that like, we live in this, uh, this, this, this toxic culture where everyone's just sitting on like the edge of offense, the edge of anger, the edge of 
you know, chaos. Um, uh, and, and it's not just them, it's us. Like we, we would have to admit we are more unsettled. We are unraveling. We are a little more anxious, a little more quick with our temper. We are upset about more things. And so James would ask you the question today, he asked me the question, what is causing you to be so upset? And I want you to think about that. Let's don't rush, just rush past that. What is causing you? Think about your life for a moment. As you think about the last week or the last month or the last 24 hours, I don't know. You think about your life and where you've been upset, where you've been angry, where you've been triggered. What, what are the things in your life that are upsetting you? Think about it. What are the things in your life that are really upsetting you? You got it? You got, you got, it? You got one or two or 27 things in your mind that you're, you're ready to go? You got it? Okay. Now, we would all list different things that are upsetting us. They would be different for the most part. Um, but what all our answers would have in common is that we are, we are upset because we don't have something we want. This is what our scripture is teaching us today. This is what he, he says. He says, what's causing um, fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires that were within you? You want what you don't have. You want what you don't have. So you scheme, and he says kill, which is a whole separate sermon, but you, you scheme to get it. So in essence, he, he's accusing humanity. He's accusing you and I of, of being unsettled within us and, and not having what we want. And because we don't have what we want, we kind of live in this mentality or with this mindset or this idea or this posture of trying to get it. And when we don't have it, we are upset. We don't have what we want. And so... You know, maybe it would be respect or money or affirmation or certain opportunities. And this is really profound, by the way. Like this is, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to charge you. This is free counseling. Are you ready? I'm going to give you some free counseling today. Because this is incredibly profound. This has the potential to change your life. I'm being serious, not, not hyperbole here. That what this is teaching us is that every time you ever get really upset about something in your life, you can trace it back to not having something that you want. This is true. You think, well, no, not that, because that was what they did to me. No, they did do something to you. But if you are upset, it is because you don't have something that you want. So maybe they did something to you, but the reason you're upset is because you felt disrespected. You want respect. You don't have it. They stole from you. And they say, well, that's what upset me because nobody likes to be stole from. Okay, true. But it's, it's, it's the fact that they, they, it was the fact that you felt like you don't have security because your boundaries were, were uh, you know, you were robbed. And so you lost the sense of security and you don't have it anymore. Or, or you didn't get a promotion. And so like, like you, you don't have something that you want and, and you didn't get it and, and you were reminded of that. And that is what's causing you to be upset. All of the conflict we have in life and in our world is from unmet desire, jealousy, and the war that's going on inside of us. This is incredibly profound. Please hear this. And so I was thinking about a couple of examples of this this, this week. That, that I feel like maybe all of us can relate to in some way. Uh, what about this example? Think about a couple where the wife is really upset because the husband went out and bought a brand new expensive truck without asking or a, a new car or whatever. And I'm using some gender stereotypes here, but you know, maybe she bought the car, he, but we're gonna just use the guy in the truck, okay, for a second. 
And so now there's a big fight that's happening in this relationship because he bought this truck that cost as much as their house and he didn't, he didn't ask. He didn't, they didn't even talk about it. He just pulled the trigger, right? So, so she's angry because he didn't ask. But really she's angry because the truck threatens something that she wants. And maybe it's security. Because now they've got a payment, and now they, the savings account is not as large as it is. And so it's not really about the truck. It's about the truck, but it's not really about the truck. It's about security. And he's in trouble because he spent a lot of money that he shouldn't have, which is true. But it's not, it's not that he wanted a truck. He wanted what he thought the truck would give him. He wanted what he, he thought the truck would give him. Maybe in that instance it was credibility. And so now you have a husband and a wife who are fighting because she doesn't have the security that she wants and he doesn't have the credibility that he wants, but it just played out among a truck payment. But this is why there's conflict in the relationship. Both people don't have something that they want. And you can yell about a truck, but it's not about the truck. It's about the feelings that are waging war inside of us that are causing us to do stupid things. Or getting passed over for a promotion at work. This is another example. So you got passed over and you're furious. Why are you furious? Because it wasn't fair, is what you would say. And you're right, it wasn't fair. But that's not why you're most upset. You're most upset because you won't get what you think that promotion will give you. There's something that you believe that promotion will give you. Maybe it's more money for more pleasure, or maybe it's more power, or maybe it's more respect. And, and if you had that, you would have those things, but you don't have it. And so because you don't have what you want, now there's conflict quarreling among you. Or, or your, what about this? Your party loses an election, political party or you know, local or national election, and you're furious and so anytime political conversation comes up at any event, without even thinking about it, all of a sudden you just realize that you're talking more like this. And you don't know why you're always raising your voice about social security, right? Why are you so upset about a political outcome? Because of moral conviction? Yeah, I'm sure that's some of it. You really believe in a philosophy or, or some type of, of thing, but at a deeper level, you're conflicted because you lost something you really want. Maybe it was certainty. And you knew that if, if a certain party was, was there, that financially things would be the same or, 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 or religiously things would be the same. And, or maybe it's power. You hate feeling as if what you believe in doesn't have a voice. And so now you've lost the power and you've lost the certainty. And so you don't know what the future holds. And now you're furious because maybe at even at a subconscious level, you, you don't have something that you desperately want. And you had it, but now you lost it. You lost it. These are just a few examples. We could give some more. But James is saying to us that your soul is unsettled and your emotions are frazzled because you want what you don't have. You don't have it and you want it. And as long as you want what you don't have, something inside of you is, is bubbling up in your soul. Now, I've shown you this image a couple of times. They're going to throw up an image for you. And you're going to be seeing this more and more because this is really kind of a, a huge piece of, of the spiritual formation that we so desperately want for you at this church and in your life and my life. But this is called the structure of self 
And, and it's just a basic, it's just an image that, that tells us that, that our desires are the foundation of, of our life beneath the surface. You guys have that? Are you able to throw that up back there? The, the image that, that, that desires beneath the surface, the yellow line is beneath the surface. Our physical self is the life that we live, that people see, the actions that we do. But all the other things, thoughts, emotions, beliefs, desires, they're happening beneath the surface of our life. And at the core of who we are is our desires. It's what we want more than anything else in the world. You've heard me maybe talk about this, a lot of you. That your desires, what you want more than anything else in the world is what shapes your beliefs, the the code that you live your life by. And, And the code that you live your life by is what forms and shapes your feelings. And when your beliefs are interrupted or broken and you don't have what you want, then your emotions are all over the place. And and when your emotions all are over, all over the place, your thoughts are all over the place, and now you begin to live a life that maybe you don't want to live because you're thinking thoughts you don't want to think, feeling things you don't want to feel, not sure what you believe, and wrestling with what you want but you don't have. This is fundamental to what Christ is trying to do in our life. And until you and I are self-aware enough to know what we really want, please hear me. Until you are able, through the help of the Holy Spirit, to have enough self-awareness to know what it is that you really want in life, you will keep doing things you don't want to do to stop feeling ways you don't want to feel. So maybe you're here today and you would say, I want to stop doing these things. I, I don't want to be this person. But no matter what you do or what class you take or course you sign up for, or resolutions you make or all the changes, you, you can't stop doing these things. And you're, you're at your wit's end. You don't know why. And, and the reason you can't stop doing them is because the reason you're doing them is because you feel ways you don't want to feel. We do things we don't want to do because we feel ways we don't want to feel. And so James is saying to us, that that unsettledness you have in your life, that discontentment you have, that anger, that rage, that offense that you're carrying around with you, that bitterness, that jealousy, that envy, that insecurity that you're carrying around with you in your life comes from not having what you really want in your life. And then he takes it a step further and says, you don't have it because you don't ask God for it. Now, what does this mean? I have to admit to you, that until this week, I did not totally understand what this verse meant. And I don't say that to like build this up in some way, but I just kind of had a misinterpretation of what this verse means because at first glance, and Jesus even said something like this, at first glance, it sounds like what James is saying is, you don't have it because you never said to God, I want it. You don't have it because you didn't ask for it, but if you'd asked for it, you would have gotten it. But we know that's not true because you don't get everything you pray for. We know that's not true, Okay. And so this verse can't mean that if you would pray a little differently or say the right combination of words, you would actually get the things that you pray for. That can't be what it means. So what does it mean? What what does it mean? James is saying to us that we have these desires that we we want, but but we don't have. And we don't really come to God and invite God in to the, the, the inadequacies and the discontentment in our life because we don't actually believe that God is the answer for them. You see, he's not saying you don't have it because you didn't say it in the right order. He, he's saying you don't come to God and ask God about it because you think it's about a truck, but it's not about a truck. 
And if you would come to God and you would talk to God about what's happening deep in your soul, God would help you. But you, you aren't coming to God to try to solve the inadequacies and the insecurities you have in your soul because you think it's about a truck and a promotion and a savings account and, and, a, and a body figure. And, but if you'd come to God, God would be able to give you the satisfaction and the, the, the desires that of, your, of your heart. And then he says, and when you do ask... You ask with the wrong motives. What does he mean there? He's saying that there are times we come to God, but we're coming to God saying, God, I've tried the truck, I've tried the bank account, but like, if you would just do this for me, I would be a lot happier. We still don't get it. Like, yeah, we're coming to God, but we're still, we don't want God. We want what God could do for us. We come to God for what God could do, not for him being God. And so we are still trying to God is the same as a gym membership, is the same as a, as, a, as a Stitch Fits box, is the same as a new job, is the same as a new boyfriend, is the same as a, you know, whatever it is. It's just God this time. And he's saying, so either you're not bringing it to God and talking to him about it, or you are talking to God about it, but it's like, God, you know, slot machine God, like hopefully like you'll, these will line up and you'll give me what I want. Right? And that's why in verse 4, James says, you and I are Sarah. We, we leave God on the dance floor. In verse 4, he says this. I want to read it to you in verse 4. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God, which escalated quickly. Did it not? <laughs> wow. Okay. This is why I told you about the seventh grade dance. Because James says something so provocative and damning about you and me. He calls you and me adulterers. Now, he's not calling us literal adulterers, like all of you in the room have cheated on your spouse. He's calling us adulterers in this metaphorical sense where, where God is our, our, our husband and we are his bride. The Bible's filled with these marriage metaphors between us and God. And in the mildest terms, what James is saying is, you told God you wanted to dance, and then because you didn't like the dance, you left. But in the boldest sense, he's saying you made a commitment to God, and then you cheat on him. And you cheat on him. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? That's rude. Doesn't he know it's friends and family day? <laughs> It'd be so awesome if I could just like preach on patience today. But this is where we are in James, so this is why we do it, right? The Bible's filled with these marriage metaphors describing our relationship with God. We are his bride. And so, and so James is saying that that restlessness that's waging war in you and all the things that you really want that you don't have, you could go to God to have him fill those desires. And listen, he probably won't give you a truck. Maybe you'll get the truck. I don't know. But he could do something better than the truck. He could satisfy your deepest desires. He could, he could do something deeply in your soul so that every time you drive past a car lot, you don't feel insignificant as a person. Or every time you go to your friend's house that's bigger than yours, you don't feel like less of a person. Or when you don't get the promotion, you don't feel like less of a person. God could do something deeply in your soul. He could do that. But you don't ask him to do that. Because... 
because you believe that the world, this is what he means by the, this is why he says the world, you believe that the answer is in something else. When he talks about friendship with the world and the enemy to God, don't, don't read that like an episode of Gossip Girl, okay? What he's saying is, he's saying is that there's a way to have the deepest desires of your heart fulfilled, and you either go to God or, or you go to the world. And you can't really, like, it's not, it's not kind of a 50-50 kind of op thing. It's, it's, a, it's like, in, think of it as like enmity with God instead of enemy with God. It's like the world or God, God or the world. He, he's kind of laying this out. And so what happens is we become a Christian potentially, but we have this unsettledness in our soul. And instead of believing that God could actually change us at the deepest levels and, and really kind of squelch those, those insignificant desire, uh, feelings, insecurities, and things like that. Instead, we believe it's the world, but we don't want to bail on God completely. And so we, we become adulterers, metaphorically speaking. And we don't really have what we want. We kind of become a bored housewife. And so you act married to God, but you sneak around on him to get satisfaction. This is what he's, he's saying to you. And to me, and again, I, 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 I knew friends and family, they were coming, and I was like, fantastic, Jay. Like, um, this is awesome. And I know there's guests here, and I know there's people that are not even Christians, and you're not even sure where you are. And so, like, I kind of was reeling for, like, 24 hours thinking, like, man, I don't know. This is, like, a little bit heavy and a little bit serious. But honestly, I kind of had a change of heart because what a great opportunity to talk about something that none of us want to admit out loud but probably feel in our hearts. I've talked to enough people and I've been alive as a human being enough myself to know that what James is describing here is the human existence. It's the human existence. We act as if we're everything all the time, but yet feel like nothing and not enough all the time. Maybe you would say something like this. I'm trying to be a good Christian, Jason. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to be a good mom or dad. I'm trying to help when people ask me. I'm trying to not do as many bad things. You know, I'm trying to be a good person. But if I'm being honest, it all feels a little bit underwhelming, you know? And you wouldn't say it out loud, but you would say to yourself, you're not totally convinced that you wouldn't be happier if you just like ran away to Vegas. Never looked back or you just gave up on the religion thing, or you just slept with whoever you wanted, or you just bought whatever you wanted. Like you've, you've had real long thoughts about it. You've had real fantasies about it. Just, just, just abandoning all these obligations and abandoning all these things in life that you're trying to do and you committed to and you thought would be the life you wanted. And now like you resent the minivan every time you look at it, the laundry every time you look at it, the hours you have to keep in the office every time you drive in. The kids or the, you know, you love your family, but you also feel trapped by that family in some way. And, and so you fantasize and you think like, man, if I could just bail, if I could just run. And some people get up the courage and do that. And other people stay feeling that way the rest of their life. They just, they, they play it out in their mind. They just don't ever act on it. And religion feels like an obligation. And you are a Christian 
but you feel so underwhelmed by Christianity. You feel so underwhelmed. You still don't have the life that you want, even though you're a Christian. And when we feel this way, the, the, typically the way we try to snap out of it is through guilt or intensity. Which is why, by the way, I mean, just so you know, like, I hate when, when I work very hard as we're going through sermons and I'm putting together sermons, I, 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 look very, I work very hard to try to see where are the speed bumps in the sermon where, that would feel incredibly condemning because I know as human beings, we're wired to grab a hold of those. And that's our takeaway. I am a failure. I am awful. I shouldn't do that. Like, and so that, because we're so wired to kind of grab a hold of guilt and shame that if we get a hint of it, we just feel better about ourselves just like condemning ourselves right? How dare I cheat on God like that? You're right. Snap out of it, punish myself, get it together. But that's not what James says we should do. As he confronts us with this hard challenge of of sneaking behind God, he doesn't say that you should beat yourself up about it. He doesn't even really paint the picture that God is angry as much as he would say God is brokenhearted. And so, so many people, when, when you hear me, and those of you who come regularly, you know, you know, all the time we're preaching the gospel message that says that you're so much more loved than you believed, you're more sinful than you know, more loved than you believed, that your salvation's not based on what you do, it's based on what Jesus did. And so, so often conversations come from that where people say, wait a minute, you're saying it doesn't matter what I do. I can do whatever I want. And there's this relief. There's this feeling of like, if you're telling me that it doesn't matter what I can do and I can do whatever I want, then man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live it up. I'm not gonna be trapped by all this. I'm not gonna feel trapped by all that. I'm gonna live it up because you're saying, you sure, Jason, you're saying it doesn't matter. And when you say that, what you're saying is your only motivation ever was fear. It was never love. When finding out that it's what Jesus did and not what you do that secures your salvation, if that makes you feel like you need to take a trip to Vegas because you never were allowed to, but now you can, what you're saying is your motivation was always fear. Oh, but now that I know I'm not going to burn in hell, I'm going to live it up. It's fear, not love. Fear, not love. And this is where it's really hard. And this is where it gets really kind of painful for you and me. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us. But what we're admitting in thoughts like that and statements like that is that we don't really want to obey. We don't really want to be married to God, metaphorically. We want pleasure or power or comfort or security. And yeah, listen, God gives us heaven and that's way better than hell. But we're this bored housewife living this double life because we don't want to bail on God really, but we don't really want to let go of what we believe will satisfy the deepest desires of our life. But everyone hear what I'm saying to you. Please hear this week after week after week after week after week. The Christian life is not one of obligation or duty. It's one of love. Please hear that. And maybe you weren't raised that way and maybe you have a different interpretation of religion, but please hear me. The Christian life is not one of obligation. You don't give to God or give to the church because like, here, take the money. You don't serve because it's like, well, I don't want y'all to think I'm a bad person. You don't read your Bible because if not, God's going to, you know, make your car break down. It's not, Christianity is not obligation or duty, it's love. 
We obey God. We serve God out of love because when we don't, we break his heart. This metaphor of adultery is this sense of a, of a husband who gave everything, who gives everything, serves out of love, sacrifices out of love, the purest love, the greatest love. And so it's not that he wants to send lightning bolts from, from heaven when we bail. It's that he, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. So James tells us to resist the devil and come close to God. But we don't really want to. We want the security of marriage without the hassle of commitment. Metaphorically speaking. And so this is a great opportunity to stop and consider whether or not since you became a Christian, you ever really wanted anything different in life. Like that's a, that's a serious question. Since you placed your faith in Jesus, since there was that moment or that time when you would say, I became a believer, I became a Christian, I put my faith in the work of Christ. Since that time, have the desires of your life changed at all? Have you wanted anything different? And unfortunately for so many, that coming to Christ is this short-term thing to clear our conscience. But it's not an actual surrendering of our life. And this is one way that you can know. This is one way you can know whether or not you have this living faith. Is has your faith in Christ caused your desires to change at all? Now listen, of course, our desires don't go away completely. There is a war that is waging inside of us. Ah. Which is why we need to resist the devil. And draw close to God. James is making two points here. The first point he's making is that it's hard for us to resist the devil and to come close to God. Because if we're being honest, we don't really want to. But that's why we need to. And sadly, I've done enough marriage counseling to know when one spouse doesn't want to be married. But they don't want to be the one responsible for the divorce. And in those instances, no amount of advice will help. There's no advice that will help because it's not an information problem. There's no desire. And you can't vice your way out of it. You have to fall in love. You have to fall in love. And so James says 7, 8, 9, 10. I told you this is where we want to get to. I got like three minutes left, all right? James says to us, humble yourself. Resist the devil. Draw close to God. And if you are trying to follow God out of duty or obligation, what you hear is, okay, no, you're right, you're right. Say that again, what was I supposed to do? Okay, humble myself, okay, resist the devil, okay, draw close to God, okay, how, how much this week do I need to do that? What's an appropriate amount of time? See, that's serving God, that's becoming a Christian out of obligation, or that's trying to be a Christian out of obligation. But remember, James has used this whole metaphor of adultery which I know so, so many of you in the room have walked through. I'm not making light of this. Please, I'm actually emphasizing the pain of it. But remember, he's using this, this, this metaphor of adultery. And so if we here humble ourselves, resist the devil, draw close to God, and we, and, and, and we are someone who doesn't want to be married anymore but doesn't want to be responsible for the divorce, what we hear is, 
Tell me that again. Like how, how many days do I buy her flowers? How, 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 how often do I need to compliment him? What, what's, what's, what's an appropriate amount of time? Humble myself. Resist, I'll, okay, you're right. No, I need to do better about that. Okay, I'm going to do that. That's not what he's saying. James is saying to us that we are adulterous people in our hearts, that we are not still convinced about these desires. And so what he says is, I'm not giving you another obligation. I'm not giving you another task. What I'm teaching you and what I'm showing you is how to fall in love again with God. Now, he's not giving us a step one, step two, step three formula. I get very nervous about step formulas because the Holy Spirit's involved and it's way messier than this. But if I could, just for the cleanliness of this delivery, I would say he lays it out in the exact order it has to be in. He says, you want to fall back in love with God? You, you have to do three things and you have to do them in this order. Number one, you have to humble yourself. Look at what he says. They say that God's passionate, the spirit he has placed within us, should, and we should be faithful to him. He's talking about coming back together. So, how do, we, how do we fall back in love with God? So, humble yourselves before God. Number one, you have to humble yourself before God. Humility is a proper perspective of who you are. Humility recognizes what you're not. Humility downplays you. Humility is an admission that you have a proper view of yourself. Proper view of yourself. There's a story Jesus told about two men who go to the temple and one's a really religious person and one is a, is a notorious sinner. And the really religious person says, God, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that guy, that bum over there. And the sinner, the notorious sinner says to God, God, I am a sinner, have mercy on me. And Jesus said to the religious people, what prayer do you think was heard? You think it was the humble prayer or the prideful prayer? And so James is using this idea of humility saying, okay, let, let's, let's think about this metaphor. Let's think about a couple. Let's think about a spouse that has been unfaithful. And now we're trying to piece this marriage back together. How do you think it would go if the person who was responsible for cheating said, listen, it's not that big a deal. I didn't even do anything that bad. You feel like that would work? You feel like that's a great step one? You feel like we're going to be able to reconcile this thing? Probably not. That what you're looking for first in a person, if they're trying to reconcile in some way, is someone who's saying, this is my fault. I did this. I know that I hurt you. Right? This is the humility that says, I recognize my position and responsibility in this. To be a Christian requires humility. We say it all the time because all you bring to God is your sin. There's no such thing as a prideful Christian because in order to become a Christian, you have to have a proper view of yourself that recognizes I can't save myself. Only Jesus Christ on the cross has the ability to save me. And so, and so first he says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You're not God. You don't get to tell God what to do. You have a proper view of who you are. But then he says, resist the devil. If you're wanting to fall in love with God, if you're actually wanting the desires of your heart to be for God, you have to resist the devil. Because the devil, according to Jesus, is trying to still kill and destroy your life. This is a real thing. If you don't believe in this, it sounds fairy tale like but we, as Christians, we believe in this, that there is an enemy, there is an evil, there is a Satan, there's a devil that is trying to destroy our lives. And so, and so he says like, you're either yielding to the enemy or you are resisting the enemy and, and, and then growing closer to God. 
In the book of Genesis, when God showed up to, to Cain after he killed Abel, God said to Cain, he said, the, the, the sin is crouching at your door, and if you don't subdue it, it will master you. This idea that there is a responsibility on us to subdue the sin that is growing from within us, not outside of us, from within us. That it is either growing or it is being fought, but it is never remaining neutral in our lives. And it's not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's desires and ambitions and, and feelings and ways that we're either becoming more like the world or we're becoming more like Jesus. And we have to recognize those areas and we have to resist them. Let's go back to the marriage adultery metaphor. You're trying to reconcile a relationship. And the person says, hey, listen, I know I really hurt you. My bad. I'm still going to see them. I just won't sleep with them. But I'm just, I'm, we're still going to be around each other. Just, but don't even stress about it because we won't sleep together. It's probably not going to work. You would want to know, like, hey, do, do you want to stay away from that? Do you want to be with them? Do you want, in, in a way, this is what James is saying, is like the humility to recognize your sin. Is there anything inside of you that says, I do believe that that's not what will fulfill my desires in life, and so I will do whatever it takes to resist and stay away from it? You will only do that after humility. And then lastly, he says, draw close to God. You'll never be able to draw close to God if you're not humble and you're not resisting the devil because it will be for these wrong reasons. It will be out of obligation or duty. But he's describing falling back in love. And he says, you, you have humbled yourself. You recognize the proper view of yourself. You've taken responsibility for who you are and recognized your humanity and recognized your sin. And with God's help, you're doing everything you can to fight the influence of the enemy in your life. And now you come to God. And it sounds, if you're a guilt-ridden Christian, it sounds like that James is saying, if you'll take a step in his direction, he'll come your way. But if you're not going to come this way, then he's not coming your way. Sounds like he's saying, once God sees you take a step, then yeah, he'll come one your way. And it's 50-50 here. That's not what he's saying. That's not the gospel. James is saying, if you want to feel closer to God, try to get closer to God. That the more you draw near, the more near you feel. And the good news about turning around and drawing close to God and changing the way your life is headed is you only have to take one step to be going in the right direction. I am now closer to the back door than I was just a second ago. I am now farther away from the back door. And James says, if you will draw near to God, guess what you'll feel? Nearer to God. Because you're resisting the devil. You have a proper view of who you are. And there is a reconciliation happening. There's a love that is being kindled in this relationship. And these desires in your heart that are waging war against you. You're, you're, you're seeing the lies. You're recognizing the lies. And you know now the truck's not going to satisfy me longer than like a four days. And the bank account and the job and the sex and the body. And it's not, it's not that's not working. Only a relationship with God through the power of Jesus Christ will get to the deepest level of who I am and change what I want and change how I feel. We're going to pray a prayer together. If you got a worship guide when you came in, um, 
There's a congregational prayer on there. We do this every week to give, a, to give a vocabulary, to give a language. And we want you to take this prayer and figure out how to fit it into the rhythms of your day and week this week. But we're going to pray this prayer together, and then the, the band's going to come. Matter of fact, they can go ahead and get in their spots. And you're going to have the opportunity to take communion. And when you're taking communion, I want you to recognize that the same things that Jesus or that James is commanding us or telling us or inviting us to do is the same thing that our example, Jesus Christ did. That Jesus Christ humbled himself, left heaven as God and became a man. He resisted the devil, the temptations of the devil, the temptations of the world and was a sinless man. He died on the cross so that you and I could draw close to God. Before Jesus died on that cross, you couldn't draw close to God. But because of Jesus, you can. And we get to remember that. So we're gonna pray this prayer together. And as they're singing, you have an opportunity to do communion and pray. But I'm gonna pray this for us. And I just want you to join me at the very end where it's in bold, those last couple of lines, you can join me, but I'm gonna pray for us until the end. Oh God, great lover of our soul, we confess that we have sinned against you. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. Instead, we have given our heart away to things which promise to fulfill, but only leave us wanting. We would rather choose you, Jesus, but we are weak, so be our strength. We are lured away by lies, so be the truth. Oh, merciful God, our sinful hearts are filled with envy and jealousy, prone to wander. We fight for pleasure from this world that has our heart. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, but don't just forgive our deeds, forgive our unfaithfulness. Return to us the joy of salvation and give us greater desires for your kingdom. Will you join me? Let us not obey out of obligation, but instead from a heart of joy, knowing you are our great reward. Amen.